This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, we're speaking with Robert Yell about his book, The Language of Disenchantment, Protestant Literalism, and Colonial Discourse in British India, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. What is the nature of secularization? How distant are we from the magical world of the past? Perhaps we are not as far as many people would like to think. In this fascinating new book, we witness some of the discursive practices formulating the Christian myth of disenchantment. Robert Yale aims to pull up some of the religious roots of secularism by highlighting the Christian dimensions of colonialism. He achieves this through an examination of colonial British attitudes toward Hinduism and delineates several Protestant projects that assert an ideal monotheism. British colonial discourse in India was integrally tied to religious reform and located false belief in linguistic diversity. Verbal idolatry was specifically addressed through efforts of codification and transliteration. Overall, Yale's work on British critiques of South Asian mythological, ritual, linguistic, and legal traditions offer new insights on modernity, secularization, religious literalism, and colonialism. We also discussed the language of disenchantment in, in light of Yell's interest in semiotics, which he addressed more explicitly in another new book, The Semiotics of Religion, Signs of the Sacred in History, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2013. In our conversation, we discussed Orientalism, modernity, Hindu mythology, literary versus oral cultures, Max Mueller, magical dimensions of ritual, Christian critiques of Jewish law, scripturalism, mantras, and print print culture, among many, many other things. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome to New Books in Religion. Uh, I'm your host, Christian Peterson. This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with Robert Yell about his uh, great new book, The Language of Disenchantment, Protestant Literalism and Colonial Discourse in British India. Uh, Good morning, Robert. Thanks for making some time to talk to us. How are you doing? I'm well. Good morning, Christian. How are you? And thanks for arranging this. Oh, yeah. This is a a wonderful and deeply researched book. Um, I I think a lot of listeners are going to like this because you're you're really bringing uh, a lot of conversations going on in the study of religion together here in a very uh, comprehensive and and very clear uh, way. I think a lot of people, some of these debates that you get into are are somewhat complex, and you, you present them in a very um, clear and concise way for, for readers. So uh, well, it's a, it's a great book. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. On that score, I, I can add that I think as I get older and have more experience, my writing style is actually improving. So there is hope for all of us. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know. Um, before we kind of get into the details of the book, uh, I think it, especially for your book, since this really is a product of uh, your previous training and 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 research, um, maybe you could kind of give us a back a little bit about your background, perhaps how you got study uh, interested in the study of religion, maybe some people that were particularly influential and in how you approach religion. Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> well, uh, my interest in religion, uh, studying religion, goes back to college, where I actually took my uh, degree in philosophy. Uh, but that was in part because I, I wasn't able to, t- uh, to do a joint major in religion and philosophy at Harvard College. It was possible, but I 
frankly, I couldn't get the philosophy department to approve my thesis topic. Um, but I was already moving away from straight philosophy then because it seemed rather bloodless to me, especially as it was done at Harvard College, which uh, the curriculum focuses there on the analytical tradition. Um, my interest had always been in continental philosophy, uh, especially Nietzsche. And I, I found uh, myself more engaged with the study of uh, historical religious tradition. So I, I even took, uh, went to the extent of taking a semester of uh, Sanskrit uh, back then and uh, took a number of courses on South Asian religions. Um, so some of the people who were influential uh, then and uh, um, interesting me in the study of religion were uh, Carol Zaleski and took a course on Tibetan Buddhism also from uh, David Eckel that I remember very well. Um, and Diane Eck, from whom I had my very first course ever in religion, a very inspirational teacher. So those were some of the, the culprits, I would say. But then I took a, a, a vast detour after college. It didn't seem to me to be practical to go into the graduate study of, of religion. So I, instead, I went to law school. And um, I, I learned a great deal from that. And, and some, um, well, uh, I can't presume many people know, a few people may, that uh, a portion of my work has been on uh, law and religion for a number of years, for about the last decade, in fact. Um, some of which actually touches on uh, the South Asian context. So I found myself pulled back into the study of uh, religion for various uh, reasons. And then I enrolled at the University of Chicago Divinity School and having already studied some uh, South Asian traditions, I, I chose to begin the study of Sanskrit and always were a, a comparativist. Um, Frank Reynolds was my advisor, a uh, scholar of Buddhism with very broad interests, and, and he always uh, was very generous in encouraging his students to pursue uh, their own paths. So uh, that's what I did. And uh, then for my dissertation, I, I use semiotic theories, mostly borrowed from Roman Jakobson's studies of uh, poetry, to get at the function of Hindu tantric mantras. Um, and, and for me, this, this was uh, um, an illustration of how there, there ultimately isn't any contradiction between theoro theoretical and, and data-driven uh, studies. I, I found that the, the theories of the, the mantra, the manner uh, in which poetry makes mantras effect, uh, effective, successful, even for magical purposes, siddha, uh, coincided with some of the linguistic theories of pragmatics uh, that I've using that had also described how poetry contributes to ritual performance. Um, that, that was my dissertation. It came out a year after I, uh, I graduated. So I graduated in 02. The book Explaining Mantras came out in 03. And I moved on. And uh, one of the uh, issues that I became interested in immediately in the wake of uh, studying the poetry of mantras was what had happened to that poetry. So as I, I do talk about a bit in the beginning of the Language of Disenchantment book, um, I pretty quickly stumbled upon these polemics in the British tradition against the use of vain repetitions or various poetic devices in prayer. And uh, over a period of several years, I investigated this and, and thank God for these uh, large databases like uh, early English books online and 18th century collections online, was able to reconstruct the theology underlying the Protestant, uh, mainly Puritan critique of repetitions in prayer. So this enabled me to describe a contrast between these uh, traditional um, Indian or specifically tantric formulas and uses of language and, and what the British were doing. And um, that allowed me to do comparative religion in a way that was also historically grounded, because instead of um, myself imposing the comparison between these two different traditions, the comparison had itself already been framed uh, by British in the colonial Indian context. That was one of the points of embarkation for the Language of Disenchantment book. Um, also, uh, I, I got very interested in having studied uh, ancient religion, classical religion, in what difference was introduced or represented by, by modernity, by secular modernity, um, hence the, uh, the engagement with Baber's theories. 
secularization and disenchantment. Uh, and my excavation of the um, very important role that, that Protestant theological traditions had played in these transformations uh, in culture and, and religion. So it's an extension of, of Weber. Um, and the book, the book essentially continues my earlier interest in linguistics and semiotics and symbolism uh, by describing the uh, secularization and disenchantment from a linguistic perspective. So that that's the the frame of the book. That's uh, how my uh, my general interest in South Asian traditions uh, ended up uh, producing this uh, this second book, essentially uh, covering a whole new tradition, moving from. Sanskrit tantras to uh, British Protestantism. <laughs> um, this this idea of disenchantment uh, in the in the first chapter, you you kind of lay out how uh, secularism, Christianity, and then also Orientalism are uh, all kind of intertwined. Uh, can you kind of unpack this for listeners? What's the relationship between these, and what what's what are some of kind of the debates about secularization? Sure. I'll, I'll try to briefly to respond to the connection, the question about the connection with Orientalism. Uh, essentially, I was uh, building from Gil Anajar's contention that uh, Orientalism is secularism and secularism is Christianity. And, and I think this is, um, this is a very important contention that, that is also contentious uh, within the field of, of post-colonial studies because, um, frankly, um, and this is the reason why there was space for this book, um, most of the work on colonial India, the historical work, has been done by uh, historians who may not have happened to have the training in religious studies and, and for whom engagement with um, uh, British Protestantism hasn't, hasn't been uh, traditionally one of the requirements for their study, but um, <clears throat> the uh, the space then for this book really was the the great lacuna that was uh, um, produced by uh, studies of the colonial era that were themselves relentlessly secularist in their own orientation. And I frankly would contend that you can't understand what the British were doing in 19th century and you can't understand the great language that they use unless you pick up the intertextual references to both the Bible uh, and to uh, Christian theological tradition. Um, these echoes are certainly there for those who are prepared to recognize it. And, and the book uh, tries to flesh that out using a number of case studies. What is the connection between... Uh, secularization um, and Christianity. Um, you're right, there's a great deal of debate over this, uh, as I lay out in the book, uh, in, uh, even though there it's somewhat sketchy, I, you could write a, an entire book, uh, of course, about uh, theories of secularization, debates over secularization. Some people have claimed that um, the idea of a rupture with the past, such as is represented by Weber's thesis of, of secularization and disenchantment, uh, is simply inaccurate, um, either because uh, there never was any magic. Magic is a retrospective uh, projection of uh, modern or early modern uh, viewers onto the past. Uh, and this thesis goes all the way back, for example, to the 70s, to Hilbert Geertz's anthropological critique of Keith Thomas's thesis in Religion and the Decline of Magic, and much more on Thomas's side, as I point out in the book. Um, and then there are those who say that, uh, well, yes, there is magic, but it's never gone away, and so modernity is still enchanted in many respects. And I, I, I like this idea a little bit better. First of all, I'm disposed to believe that there is such a thing as magic, because, in fact, what I studied in my first book on mantras was how the uh, they worked, or were believed to work, rather, uh, as magical formulas, even in bringing about uh, concrete results in the world by means of manipulating language. Um, so uh, those are, are some of the points that have been used to, uh, the arguments have been used to challenge the secularization thesis. The way that I look at, at secularization and disenchantment, however, um, is, is not as a, um, so much a real historical event, um, that could be proved or disproved by adducing um, certain amounts of evidence pro and con. For example, you know, 
are uh, fewer people declared churchgoers these days. This is the way that sociologists of religion tend to look at the issue. I, I don't look at it in such terms. I look at secularization and disenchantment as a state of mind. I look at it as a, a narrative about modernity um, that has a particular provenance. And, and here the contention that I make in the book, and I'm following up on it in some of my current work, is that this narrative, this theme is actually Christian. I don't even think it's uh, um, Judeo-Christian, as, as Weber thinks. Uh, Weber um, traces it back, as many will know, in the Protestant ethic to ancient Israelite um, uh, monotheism and the critique of idolatry. <clears throat> but in fact, there are several myths. In, in Christianity and Christian theology specifically that feed into this idea of disenchantment. The one that I lay out in the first chapter of the book is this notion of the silence of the oracles, that the uh, um, Plutarch has uh, a, a few treatises looking at the decline of the oracles. And in this sense, the, the idea of disenchantment even precedes Christianity. It goes back into classical paganism. Um, but Eusebius takes up this idea and he says, well, the decline of the oracles was due to Christ's intervention. Uh, and there's a whole tradition in Christianity that says that the pagan uh, spirits, the demons, were, were driven from the world, either as a result of the incarnation or, or more commonly of Christ's death on the cross, which is the central event in, in Christian history. Um, this is an ancient myth theme, but it was taken up uh, by many Protestants uh, in Britain from the 16th century onward, and I lay out some of these texts because they serve as the um, uh, immediate background and context for uh, some of the transformations in language that I'm studying. And in fact, um, this, this myth theme about the decline of the oracles is interpreted as a transformation from a mysterious, enigmatic form of speech uh, or also a poetic form of speech, because the oracles were understood also by Plutarch to have been numbered or metered, um, to a form of speech that is that is plain, uh, that is represented by the Gospels or St. Paul's preaching of them. Um, so this, this trope of a transition from uh, enchanted, poetic, enigmatic language to plain language, which emphasizes the content, especially the content of the gospel message, lies as the background for a number of the linguistic developments I study in my book. But I have to point out there are also two other uh, major Christian theological mythemes that inform the idea of uh, disenchantment. One of them is the idea that with the same event, Christ's passion, that the veil of the temple in Jerusalem is rent, that the earth shakes, and uh, also the sky darkens. And um, uh, some Protestants in the 17th century, I was just reading uh, John Spencer's treatise um, on prophecy and, and prodigies uh, the other week, um, also interpreted this as an event that ended miracles, the miracle to end all miracles, as it were. Um, that removed the, uh, the veil um, of God's message, because according to Christian typological interpretations, um, the Hebrew Bible represented a symbolic form of speech that needed to be decoded, as it were, and, and for Christians uh, represented in the form of types, it foreshadowed the, um, the anti-types or, or plain message of the gospel. Uh, this was another idea that I, I do get at it uh, a little bit um, into the language of disenchantment book. Um, the, the third, and I'll be very brief about this because I'm sure we want to move on, uh, that I'm working on in, in my current book project, Sovereignty and the Sacred, looks at um, the idea of the cessation of the charismata, um, the idea that with the end of the apostolic age, uh, miracles and in general the gifts of grace, speaking in tongues, um, so prophecy uh, ceased, um, or perhaps they ceased uh, after the first few centuries of the Christian era once Christianity became established as the majority religion of the Roman Empire. Um, again, um, like the other two mythemes, this very ancient uh, idea was taken up by Protestants um, during the Reformation and converted into a notion of that miracles and, and mystery and, and magic had ceased. So the evidence, the historical evidence, it seems to me, is very plain. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, you know, I can't agree, as I point out in the book, with Talal Assad's contention that 
the notion of disenchantment as a creation of romanticism, um, that places this trope far too late. It goes back to the ancient period. And as I say, it's resuscitated and redeployed in, in different ways uh, at the start of the Reformation, practically speaking. Um, there are echoes in Romanticism, uh, in part because Romanticism begins to um, deplore this disenchantment of the world that, that uh, by the Reformers, was regarded uh, in triumphalist terms as, as the, uh, the conquest of by Christianity of paganism and Judaism, uh, so I, I can't agree with that with that contention. And uh, you know, this is just an illustration uh, for me of why it's necessary to engage with a theological text as an historian of religion to understand um, the source of our categories, such as secularization and disenchantment. Um, there's a lot of room left to do that, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it in my, in my current book, and I, I'm sure there, there are many other editions that could be made. So I'm, I'm in the camp of people who like Adhijar, um, although I, I don't think he's dealt in the theological corpus very much, uh, uh, or like Weber, um, who uh, preceded me in this methodology of, of engaging with um, uh, Protestant theology. I'm, I'm in the camp of people who think that um, secularization and disenchantment are specifically Christian and that we can't, in fact, understand what these ideas are without engaging with um, the history of, of Christian thought. Um, so um, that doesn't mean that, that secularization and disenchantment are real, but the reality that they have is as a state of mind that inhabits and depends upon these these narratives and these mythemes, including those that I've outlined, which, as I demonstrate in the Language of Disenchantment book, continue to be um, more or less explicit even to the 19th century, and one suspects that, that they linger with us still. So I, I hope that explains clearly what my position is on, on these issues. Yeah, and uh, I think that's uh, you know starts to set up well what you kind of uh, address in the second chapter. This this uh, entitled "A Disease of Language: The Attack on Hindu Myth as Verbal Idolatry." Um, a lot of the a lot of this seems to be revolving around different understandings uh, or, or theories of language, both from a colonial and then from a South Asian perspective. Um, maybe uh, you could explain what what you mean by linguistic iconoclasm and verbal idolatry, because this is this is kind of at the heart of this chapter. Sure. Now, which chapter are you talking about? Um, the the second chapter where you're talking yes, about Hindu yes. myths. Okay, thank you. That, that's what I thought. I mean, the critique of vain repetitions is all which is addressed in chapter four. Also addresses the form of idolatry. Sure. The idea of idolatry runs runs very deep here. Um, but but the the version of it, this idea that you mentioned is the notion that um, idolatry, the belief in other gods who are being other than the Christian God, are, are false gods. Um, the the explanation of this uh, as a cognitive error that that stems from the, uh, the misinterpretation of language, specifically. Um, the false, uh, falsely inferring from the existence of a name or a word that the thing behind that name or word actually exists. This is an explanation that Falk precedes Max Mueller. Um, it becomes fairly standard in 17th century, what I call the book uh, Christian Comparative Mythology. Um, and uh, even in, in some of the specific formulations that uh, Max Mueller uses in the second half of the 19th century, uh, like the nomina numina formula, in in, in myth, uh, names are interpreted as spirits. Uh, the uh, the names of um, gods are taken as certificates of the existence of, of the spirits to to whom they refer. This idea, actually, um, uh, even in that precise formulation of nomina numina, goes back to seventeenth century uh, thinkers as Gerard Bossius and, and John Selden. Um, and and also there's precedent for it in the Baconian tradition with this uh, uh, general uh, critique of um, idols of the mind that Bacon has, um, uh, which is influential um, in 
what we think of as um, the, the rational enlightenment um, in England um, and uh, is reflected in uh, such authors as John Horne Took or, or certainly Thomas Hobbes uh, prior to that. Um, so Hobbes's explanation of um, Gentile demonology uh, depends in part on, on this notion of um, the, the belief in, in false gods depends upon falsely inferring from language. Uh, it's a linguistic error, uh, first and foremost. Um, this, uh, this is part of, part of the, um, the ground for the critique of, um, of idolatry. It's, it's an explanation for idolatry that's then extended uh, to account for um, certain phenomena, uh, such as uh, the use of of names and myth, and of course, many many people who are, will be familiar with um, manner in which Mueller deployed these ideas. He says, for example, that originally in the Vedas, there's no idolatry that, that the names for gods like uh, Agni means fire and Varana means the part of waters, and that originally uh, these references were understood to be to concrete phenomena, natural phenomena such as fire and water, but that over time they are misinterpreted as referring to as being personal names of gods, and that all we need to do is to use good etymology and trace them back to their concrete roots, at which point we understand that um, that these are simply natural phenomena that are being referred to and used metaphorically to refer to divinity. Um, and, and if we do this, then we dispel um, the illusion of, of mythology. There's another dimension to this as well. Um, linguistic iconoclasm is complemented by um, linguistic monotheism or, or monolatry. Um, the notion that um, that developed in the Baconian tradition that we should perfect language, uh, not only to remove these uh, cognitive errors um, that lead us astray, um, one illustration being the belief in, in gods who don't really exist, um, that we need to perfect language by ensuring an adequation between words and things, uh, that words have to be used in a manner that's univocal, one word for one thing. Uh, Bentham uses the phrase later within the same tradition, Adam natura, Adam nomenclatura, one nature, one, one nomenclature. This notion of, of univocity runs through the Baconian proposals for a, a perfect universal philosophical language or real from the 17th century. Uh, this, um, this correlates with, with the idea that the name of God has to be fixed as well and certified uh, as corresponding to the, the one true existent God. And uh, as I show in, in chapter three of the book, um, this idea was also instrumental in informing um, some colonial projects in, in India for the transliteration of South Asian languages in Roman script or versions of the Roman alphabet, um, <clears throat> which was also seen as, as a way of, of fixing language uh, such that the, the reference to things, uh, beginning with um, the reference to the one true God, um, would become a one-to-one -one relationship. So, the critique of linguistic iconoclasm or the, the explanation of idolatry as being due to a misinterpretation of language was complemented also by um, these ideas of, of perfecting language um, that, um, that emerge um, uh, in projects or proposals for a universal language or real character that were carried over from 17th century England uh, into 19th century uh, India, the critique of vain repetitions of poetry and language was also based uh, ultimately in part upon um, the prohibition against idolatry, against the idea that God, being like a mortal man, could be persuaded by mean rhetorical language and, and would all, uh, also reach down into the world to perform uh, certain concrete effects as a result of uh, being so persuaded by petitionary prayer. Uh, but, but that's a little bit different. Sure. This, uh, this leads into uh, what, what you deal with in the third chapter uh, fairly well. You've already talked a little bit about this. Um, 
maybe you could kind of give us uh, some details to the, the colonial responses to this linguistic diversity in South Asia. So you mentioned this transliteration project, uh, but you also in the book uh, go into great detail about this kind of codification, uh, this process that uh, colonial actors were pursuing as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, Again, what I'm trying to do in each of these chapters is not to replace the conventional accounts that we have in post-colonial studies of, of what happened in the colonial era, but simply add a layer of nuance um, that recognizes the role that, that Protestant theology played. Um, and this is a good example of that, because there's been a lot of discussion already of, of colonial projects for codification as being somehow control, regimentation of discourse, a la Foucault, and, uh, and it's received a great deal of attention already. But what I think that, that most of these um, histories have, have left out is the role that uh, Protestant ideas of literalism, of the importance of the canon of scripture, of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, as the source of salvation played also even in what we would otherwise think of as secular colonial projects as administrative projects um, for um, the organization of Indian discourses. So, so in chapter three, I, I look at, at some of these theological um, ideas as, as they influenced uh, proposals for, for codification, that is to say, the reduction of Indian languages and literatures to a, a kind of a fixed canon. Um, that was also a printed canon, by the way. The, the role of, of printing in these uh, developments um, shouldn't be underestimated. Um, and and also proposals for a, a uniform alphabet um, or, or way of recording the, the scripts, um, um, which... Um, were very important also um, for missionaries uh, and often had their origins in the desire of missionaries to proselytize among certain groups. So an alphabet was needed, for example, to record the often um, as yet only oral traditions uh, of these groups um, in some way uh, to record them with phonetic accuracy um, through a system of of notation often based on uh, the Roman alphabet with diacritics, but then also to translate um, the Bible into this, uh, this kind of script as a means of then disseminating it, especially especially by print. Um, so I look at the um, at the uh, manner in which um, the missionizing impulse. Um, which also correlated with the idea of solid scripture of the importance of the canon of scripture um, was important in informing many of these colonial projects. And, you know, not only among missionaries where you would expect to find it, but also among um, scholars like uh, Max Mueller, who, uh, who actually composed a version of the missionary alphabet. who was very much involved in this. So people may be aware, of course, that, um, Many historians of religions are sort of historians of South Asia, uh, of Mueller's work, um, his massive labor to produce a first edited um, version of the Rig Veda, uh, which took, I don't remember off the top of my head anymore, 24, 20, 25, 28 years, um, that actually brought him to England to begin with uh, to work on the manuscripts where he was then supported ultimately by the East India Company. Um but they're not as aware of his uh, his participation in, in these kinds of um, missionary projects and, and uh, especially proposals for Roman transliteration. Also, um, this was important for uh, colonial administrators. And, and there's a, um, uh, a volume that came out uh, in, the, in the 19th century, actually after the second round of debates that, that happened uh, in the 1850s. The first happened in the 1830s in, in conjunction with the earlier wave of anglicization that included Macaulay's uh, infamous Midden in Indian education. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, an anthology that organizes many of these primary sources, and, and by perusing it, and I, I have extracts in the book, it's, it's very clear that there were also missionary um, or, or theological um, overtones uh, to much of the debate, even though it was 
um, nominally about uh, colonial administration. And so you will find uh, references to the manner in, wi uh, in which, um, you know, the language is dispersed uh, at Babel um, through the uh, God's imposition of the diversity of languages and, and also uh, thereby of, of scripts and modes of writing. And, and that the institution uh, now, not by divine fiat, rather by um, government uh, of a, a single alphabet, a uh, uniform alphabetical standard or, or mode of notation, would be t uh, tantamount to reprising the, the miracle of Pentecost in Acts, where the uh, apostles were enabled to um, to preach to uh, preach the gospel to everyone in in, uh, in the various languages. Uh, so th this idea of um, um, universal language that had even a soteriological significance, um, which is an idea that informed the 17th century universal language that, that I mentioned earlier, um, also uh, has echoes uh, in these mid-19th century colonial Indian debates over um, the beneficial effect of Roman transliteration. Uh, and uh, this is an idea that, that shows the affinity of these projects also with Mueller's effort to establish a kind of um, uniform intertranslatability among languages. So, so his, his example here is the manner in which the, the Sanskrit term deva for, for God, you know, uh, parallels the, the terms uh, for God in um Classical Western languages like like Theos and, and Theos. So, so the um, um, the idea of producing a single linguistic standard, um, if not uh, actually imposing English outright, which many people, such as Alexander Duff, actually wanted to do, um, failing that, um, at least having some kind of a common system of notation, um, became uh, a kind of expression of the hope that with the confirmation of all languages or of all systems of writing, at least to this extent, you could have a confirmation of, of all religion, um, and thus monotheism um, along Christian lines. So uh, this, there, were, there were deep theological uh, roots of many of these projects that I think are, are revealed by excavating the historical connections between the 17th century pro projects that, uh, that were happening in Britain um, and, and what happened in India. And, uh, and I trace some of those interconnecting links in, in that chapter. Yeah, and this leads into, uh, I, I mean, some of these broader discussions that you've been kind of hinting at between like literary cultures versus oral, oral cultures uh, fits in well to this, this idea of, of, of Hindu mantras. Um, you approach this uh, in relation to what you call vain repetition, right, from a Protestant literalist perspective. Um, maybe you could kind of briefly tell us what, what vain repetition was in this Protestant perspective and then how mantras kind of fit into this, uh, this debate, I guess. Sure. Um, vain repetitions, uh, first and foremost, for, for Protestants um, beginning in the 16th century already, were represented by Catholic forms of the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria, the Pater Noster, Our Father, various uh, forms of repetition of the litany. And, and this was used as a polemic against these forms of, of Catholic ritual, but it was based upon the interpretation of a specific gospel verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up words as the heathen do, who think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Um, this was translated uh, for the first time uh, used to, uh, the, the phrase vain repetitions to translate this verse. Do not use vain repetition in prayer. Used in 1560 uh, in an English translation of the Geneva Bible. Uh, but it had an earlier history been used by Thomas Cranmer in his introduction to the Book of Common Prayer uh, as an excuse for stripping out repetition um, from the English liturgy. And ultimately could be traced back to uh, John Calvin's Latin gloss of, of this specific gospel verse. Um, so uh, while deployed against, against uh, Catholic forms uh, of repetitive prayer, Protestants understood by this, um, by vain repetitions, a form of prayer that was um, rhetoric, magic, and idolatry. Um, so 
the connection with rhetoric uh, is should be fairly self-explanatory. Um, the 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 notion that uh, repetitive prayers and tautologies and Protestants had some debates over um, exactly which repetitions are being referred to um, were were means of uh, of, of influencing or um, uh, people or ornamenting language um, and. This, um, as a form of rhetoric directed against God, uh, as a means of influencing them, as Protestants thought it was, uh, especially in uh, forms of petitionary prayer, was uh, was tantamount to magic, uh, the, the attempt to influence the deity to, to work within the world to produce concrete results, and ultimately as such, premised upon an idolatrous uh, understanding of the deity as anthropomorphic, as susceptible to persuasion, as, as working within the world. And, and so the condemnation of these forms, which is very much based upon the interpretation of the second commandment against idolatry, uh, already in, in Calvin's interpretation, uh, also correlated with um, what Weber already pointed to as one of the roots of disenchantment, namely the, the, the Puritan insistence that God is distant from the world. He just doesn't work in this way, doesn't reach into the world. Um, certainly can't be influenced uh, by uh, by ritual operations that we conduct. Um, so th- this the original context was Protestant Catholic debates, um, but these uh, this critique of vain repetitions is deployed already um, in the um, 16th century in South Asia um, by by travelers against in indigenous South Asian forms and, and including uh, uh, Muslim prayers. Uh, but also Hindu prayers. So, so from some of the earliest accounts we have, like Henry Lords in the 1630s, we see this already, um, and it continues for several centuries. <laughs> and so, um, even into um, this latter part of the 19th century, Monier Monier Williams, a Sanskritist um, at Oxford, uh, writes a semi-popular books about uh, about Indian religion, where he has a whole chapter on. Uh, the Indian Rosary, and he cites this gospel verse, and he uh, um, uses it to uh, condemn uh, repetitive forms of, of prayer in the Indian context. And it wasn't just uh, tantric mantras uh, or, or mantra japa, but also uh, Vedic recitation, swadhyaya, um, or, or other forms, uh, sahasranamas, uh, lists of, of, of a, a thousand or a hundred names of, of the deity. Um, are, are condemned, uh, and and what underlay this um, this condemnation was this very different theology of how language works and how it reaches or doesn't reach to the deity. And what, um, you know, in, in the Hindu tradition, that I ex- excavated in my first book, in the tantras at least, um, these forms of language are believed to invoke God into images uh, through um, uh, ritual of pranapratishta, the establishing of breath. Um, so it wasn't that the, the British Protestants were wrong in thinking that that Hindus um, had this idea that language could have magical influence or, or could even um, invoke the deity into, into into form, into embodied form. It wasn't that these criticisms uh, were necessarily inaccurate as a description of, of what Hindus felt they were doing. Um, of course, it's it's uh, what's interesting is the different value that the British placed upon these practices. They condemned them utterly. Um, and um, this um, reflected not only a, a difference in linguistic cosmology and, and as a divinity, but also, um, as, I, as I briefly allude to in, in that chapter four, but also get into in much more detail in um, not specifically with reference to South Asia uh, in chapter four. Uh, five of another book that, that came out also last fall, Semiotics of Religion. It also had something to do with print culture. When Cramer stripped um, repetitions and, and poetry out of the English liturgy in, in the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, um, this is a moment of, of convergence with polemics against um, poetic performative ritual language with uh, the ascension of, of print culture and, and the standardization and uniformity that, that this brings about. So there, there were various things uh, going on in this in this critique, but it's it's a fine illustration of um, how uh, disenchantment, in this case specifically critique of, of certain formulas that were also understood by, by those who use them in the Indian context to have magical effect, 
um, depended upon uh, specific uh, Protestant, even specifically Puritan um, conceptions of, of language and divinity. Um, this chapter, uh, the the framework is is nice because you uh, you use this again in the in the last chapter, uh, kind of the the redeployment of earlier polemics. Um, can you talk a little bit about how uh, these debates about Jewish ritual were then kind of redeployed in the in the South Asian context in relation to Hindu law? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes. The the last chapter and. You know, I, I, I can say it now. The, the book's published. I'm sure people have figured this out. The last chapter was pre-published. Uh, it, it doesn't have to do with uh, with language per se or the disenchantment of language, but I put it in this book because it fits very well with the, the theme of um, disenchantment of, uh, of Hindu culture as a result of the imposition of, of certain Protestant frameworks. In this case, what I'm taking up um, is the um, another of the mythemes, the theological mythemes, that underlies the, the notion of disenchantment. Um, that is the notion that the gospel somehow uh, superseded Mosaic law, an idea that goes all the way back to Paul and in Corinthians, uh, but was interpreted early in the Christian era um, as the theology was systematized to mean that um, portions of the Mosaic law were abrogated, specifically the ceremonial or ritual portions. Um, and this idea um, that had all kinds of ramifications for what we call secularization, separation of law from religion, the removal of religion from laws, as I as I looked at also in a chapter that I did in another volume uh, after secular law, uh, these ideas were influential in, in the Indian context, um, where terms like ceremonial law uh, and the notion that law has evolved beyond religion and specifically beyond ritual um, were, were deployed in order to strip out many of the ritual dimensions of, of Hindu law or, or Dharma Shastra tradition specifically. Um, so the term ceremonial law was, was translated um, into um, certain South Asian languages like Sanskrit and Bengali, even in the second half of the 19th century, these technical theological terms were being translated. Um, they weren't some kind of distant precedent. They were being uh, applied uh, in many instances. And it wasn't only by, by missionaries, uh, but also in the context of colonial administration, where um, I think not by coincidence, um, there was an idea that, that Indian law needed to modernize specifically by being divested of its, uh, of its ritual dimensions. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> one index that I gave of this in, in the book is that in, in certain uh, reforms in the curriculum in the government Sanskrit college in Calcutta that was superintended by Ishwar uh, Chandra Bidashagor under the influence of, of certain of these ideas, um, much of the standard curriculum in Smriti or, or Hindu law was, was, was stripped out. Um, uh, by some measures, you know, 95%, leaving only certain laws uh, that were regarded as still useful because they have to deal with property, with um, succession and inheritance and contracts and so forth. That is to say, regular law, not ritual. Um, but in, in this chapter, I, I trace the manner in which some of these biases um, that <clears throat> law, in order to be evolved, has to evolve beyond ritual and coincidentally, but not coincidentally, actually, but in symbiotic fashion, that religion evolves precisely by evolving uh, beyond ritual, by becoming, uh, be, by becoming excarnated, spiritual, disembodied, which is, is something that, uh, that Paul already um, argues in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, that these ideas were, were, were very much at play um, in the, the context for some of these um, um, colonial administrative reforms. Um, and they were play also, of course, in, in the discourse uh, of, of scholars. So uh, for several centuries, Hindus were compared to Jews on the basis of um, perceived resemblances in their laws precisely over um, the extent to which laws seem to be um, imbued with, with ritual or, or entangled in, uh, entwined with ritual. Um, and there were also historical uh, discussions, debates over uh, whether um, 
the Hindus were a lost tribe of Jews, or or whether conversely they presented something like a pure patriarchal tradition that had influenced Judaism, that influenced Moses, you know, who comes first, Moses or Manu, the lawgiver of the Hindus, um, because these resemblances were perceived to be precisely that close. Um, and and so it was it was an important trope this uh, this this parallel between Hindus and Jews that was constructed in the scholarship, um, and uh, and one that had um, certain kinds of, of consequences also because uh, the notion that uh, just as um, Mosaic law had supposedly evolved into gospel tradition, uh, so too should um, Hindu law ultimate or Hinduism ultimately evolve beyond this kind of, um, um, you know, entwinement, entanglement with, with ritual by being divested of these, uh, these carnal dimensions. Uh, so th- this is, um, this is the, um, the aspect of disenchantment or secularization that, that I address in, in, in the fifth chapter, less to do with the, um, the linguistic disenchantment or the, uh, the silence of the oracles and, and more to do with this, this other mythene, the, uh, the manner in which the, the gospel has replaced uh, mosaic law. Um, but, but certainly a key manifestation of, of secularization in uh, which is often thought to consist of the separation of law from religion. And one area in which we can, um, Trace the uh, the parallel between these um, these theological discourses and, and colonial administrative reforms. I, I think it fits uh, perfectly, and uh, I think it does justice to the overall kind of theme of the book. Um, now, much of what you deal with in the language of disenchantment uh, is closely related to this other publication that just came out, the Semiotics of Religion, which you you mention here. Um, if you don't mind us departing from that for a moment. Maybe you could tell us uh, kind of what uh, what made you write this other book, The Semiotics of Religion, um, and kind of how does this relate to your, your other projects? It seems to, to dip into kind of both the earlier work on mantras and some of this work on language. Yes. Um, the, the, the reason why I wrote the book is, is first of all, because a, a good friend of mine, Paul Buisak, uh twisted my arm over dinner uh, a few years ago. <laughs> That always at the, helps. At the IHR uh, Congress in, in Toronto, <laughs> um, I, I had met him when I was at, at the University of Toronto for a couple of years in the middle of the last decade on a postdoc because he's um, one of the uh, the most well-known uh, semioticians, a, a student of Claude Lévi-Strauss, and he told me he was starting a new book series and would I please contribute the volume on semiotics of religion. And I, I thought about it for a while and I as I thought about it, I realized, yeah, this is this is a great opportunity to synthesize some of my my work um, that I'd done uh, also in a series of articles. Now, there's much in the book that's new. I mean, all of chapters uh, five and six in that book is is new. Some of it, uh, on the other hand, represents an attempt to synthesize um, and integrate, present in in a more polished uh, and, and uniform way um, work that I'd done earlier. So, for example, in chapter two of the book of that book, Semiotics of Religion, um, there's um, a focus on the contribution of, of poetic forms to ritual performance. The performance of ritual is a mode of rhetoric. And somebody, uh, I just actually finished writing the response to a um, the various comments in a book symposium issue on that book that's coming out in Religion Journal on the first issue of the new year, um, unless something changes. Uh, and one of the commentators refer to it as a uh, new and convincing general theory of magic. Um, you know, for me, it's not exactly new. And I also regard it as, uh, because I've been working on these things for a while, I also regard it as an extension of some of the earlier work that's been done on symbolism of magic um, by going back to George uh, Fraser and, and also Edmund Leach. But um, but it is an attempt to systematize and extend these uh, ideas of uh, the manner in which the rhetoric of, of magic is a convincing form of illusion, um, precisely by virtue of the manner in which it constructs sign relations. <clears throat> the early chapters of the book, of that book, focus then on describing uh, some of these modes of, of rhetoric and ideas in what am I called traditional religion. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm drawing very much on, on Indian examples, but also examples from other traditions. It's a broadly comparative work. 
and later chapters in the book look at the transformation of language uh, and ideas of language and langu uh, language practices under processes of modernization. Um, those chapters correlate fairly closely with the book uh, Language of Disenchantment. Um, there are some parallels um, in, in what I'm talking about in both works. And, and in fact, uh, chapter five, um, uh, which looks at impact of, of print culture on these polemics against uh, repetitive language, against uh, vain petitions in prayer, uh, could be read as a, as a companion piece to chapter four of the language of disenchantment book. Um, but the semiotics of religion book is, is broader. It's not focused specifically on South Asia. Um, it has a lot of material that uh, on, on poetic performance that simply isn't in language disenchantment book it's it's much more anthropological um while also continuing to be historical um but they're both going to get at the same phenomenon in a sense which is um the uh, the disenchantment of language um under modernity uh, especially protestant modernity and i've been very much influenced in, in all of this uh, also by you know webb Keane's uh, fabulous work on on uh, the manner in which uh, protestantism um, had um, with its specific linguistic ideology opposed to modes of performative uh, language uh, had given birth to uh, a notion of uh, modernity of the modern subject. Um, and uh, I tried to follow that through uh, in, in both of these works. Um, Robert, if you could, maybe uh, if you could step back from your own work for a moment, what what do you see uh, semiotic approaches to the study of religion offering us that, per, that perhaps other approaches haven't done in the past? Yeah, I mean it, it's an excellent question. I, I, I make that argument um, more explicitly in semiotics of religion, especially at the beginning. Although I think it's um, it's implicit in in the language of disenchantment. <clears throat> I I think first of all. Um, Semiotics means many different things, but, but what I found useful uh, is uh, certain theories within the Jacobsonian tradition, especially as uh, developed by one of my teachers at Chicago, Michael Silverstein. I, I think it offers a very uh, a, a technique, a methodology for analyzing at a very fine line, uh, level specific forms of uh, ritual and particularly rich language, and, and then linking these forms up to their functions. So um, have a critique of, of certain theories of um, the contribution made by the distinctive forms of ritual, the, the notion of ritualization. I, I take to task in, in the book, and I won't rehash that now, but, but I, I think that some semiotic theories um, offer um, a better approach uh, to understanding how ritual does what it does as a mode of rhetoric. Um, also, as I was alluding to in my last response, I, I think that um, secularization can be viewed in its linguistic dimensions. Um, and so a, a comparative study of, of semiotic or linguistic ideologies, these are terms that have been used specifically in, in anthropology and linguistic anthropology, uh, allows us to compare and contrast uh, different traditions um, with respect to their views on, on particular phenomena like the contribution of poetry to performance, for example, which was important uh, for both uh, those who used Hindu mantras and, and those British who condemned them. Uh, both recognized the power of these forms of language. They simply disagreed over the legitimacy of deploying this power. And so suddenly we have a means for comparing these two traditions. And one of the things we've been lacking, frankly, in, in the study of religion is um, frameworks for comparison, ways of, of establishing uh, similarities and, and differences among different traditions. And I, I think by focusing on um, these differences in ideas and practices of language, then we have one means of um, construct a valid frame of comparison or, or typology of, of traditions in, in broader terms. Um, it's only one means. Uh, I wouldn't say it explains everything, but I, I think that semiotics is important because
because a great deal of what we call uh, religion um, is semiotic, whether we're talking about prayer, which is an effort to communicate with the divinity, uh, whether we're looking at um, a sacrifice uh, of which we could say ditto, um, or uh, we're looking at the manner in which religious communities are constructed. Naturally, this has to be done by means of language. When we're talking about religion, we're talking about an important dimension of culture. Culture is transmitted primarily by means of language. That doesn't say anything specifically about religion, um, but it's terribly important because um, it also indicates that um, what we call religion must also be transmitted in this way. And so if we begin to look at certain forms um, in non-mythology, which has uh, traditionally um, been a subject for semiotic study, you know, because of, because of Levi-Strauss, uh, but also the manner in which certain devices are deployed in, <clears throat> in ritual that we can see um, how formality, repetition, uh, palindromes, chiasmus, uh, poetic devices serve um, to uh, reinforce um, the communicative function of many of the forms that we study. And I, I think in this sense, it's a very helpful um, rubric and, and, and one that, that should be taken up um, by, uh, by the discipline. I, I, hope, I hope that the Semiotics of Religion book and, and this book as well, Language of Disenchantment, will serve to um, convince people that um, this is a, a very important um, approach to take uh, for, for studying not only different religions, but also the history of religion and, and of secularization. Yeah, I would agree. If we can use your work as evidence of its effectiveness, uh, I think people would be smart to, to follow suit. Um, before I let you go, Robert, though, we've been talking to you for a while. Um, perhaps you could kind of give us a, a peek at what you're working on now or what, what you have coming out in the future. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm working on uh, a book called Sovereignty and the Sacred. Um, I had I the luxury of being on a fellowship this year at uh, New York University School of Law at the, at the Ticker Center for Law and Jewish Civilization, and also the, um, the Jean Monnet Center as an Emil Noel Fellow. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the book is is looking at um, is trying again both anthropologically and historically. This seems to be a, a, a my my bent. I'm always trying to move between these these two different methodologies look at which certain manifestations of religion that we otherwise call irrational are, are actually um, manifestations of, of sovereignty, of uh, attempts to um, uh, go beyond ordinary constraints. And also, historically, the manner in which the prescription of um, certain forms of religion regarded as irrational, revelation, miracles, and sacrifice, specifically in, in the Diaz period, um, was a um, an attempt to proscribe uh, this idea of sovereignty that was associated with uh, the notion of an absolute omnipotent God. Um, there, there's a context, an old historical context for um, these debates in the Middle Ages and, and the scholastic uh, arguments between uh, nominalists and and realists, and it's the challenge of the nominalist idea of a radically arbitrary sovereign God that, that some have seen as um, instrumental in shaping modernity as a counter-response, an attempt to overcome the challenge, the anxiety uh, that is posed by this notion of radical contingency. So I'm thinking of Michael Allen Gillespie's work on the theological origin of modernity, or also earlier um, Hans Blumenberg and the legitimacy of the modern age. I'm looking at a slightly later period, but it, it's uh, um, which is more proximate to us and potentially more relevant for understanding modernity, but it's very much uh, based upon uh, these older debates, a moment in which the, the English deists uh, issued a really vicious polemic against the, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God of Revelation, Miracles, and Sacrifice, because they abhorred the idea that uh, um, religion could be arbitrary in this way. And um, of course, as, as many know, the deist championed an idea of natural religion um, as something that was accessible to, to human reason that we could know in the, in the light of our own reason. God wouldn't insist that we do things that uh, we couldn't understand the reason for. Um, the example uh, of um, 
um, wrong laws for many deists, such as Matthew Tyndall or Thomas Morgan, were the ceremonial laws of, of the Bible, which uh, Tyndall, for example, says are merely arbitrary and positive. So there's a, a vicious polemic against um, this model of sovereignty that, that is actually directed first and foremost against the God of the Hebrew Bible and against Judaism. And, and this is the, the, the point of embarkation for the book. And um, I'm working on the early chapter right now in which I, I look at this, <clears throat> the effects of this polemic also on uh, Max Weber's notion of the routinization of charisma, because uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier in this interview, this idea of the cessation of the charismata, uh, the end of miracles, um, was an important myth that was taken up by Protestants, especially became a fairly dominant position in 17th century England and was understood in terms that, that clearly anticipated Weber's notion of the routinization of charisma. In later chapters of the, I'm trying to unpack that in the early chapter of the book, um, also by dealing with uh, Carl Schmitt's critique of Weber, uh, Schmitt's thesis of the exception uh, in law as being tantamount to the miracle and his uh, contention that uh, the prescription of the sovereignty represented by both the um, exception, the legal exception and the miracle can be traced back to uh, radical Protestantism. In later chapters, I'm looking more at the institutions in the Hebrew Bible themselves, with drawing in examples from other traditions for comparative purposes, the manner in which such institutions as, as <clears throat> sacrifice or the ban um, can um, exemplify a, a mode of radical sovereignty that um, was prescribed precisely because it's seen as incompatible with um, the legal normativity and the um, corollary notion of, of the autonomous subject that has come to be normative in modernity. So that, that's that's kind of a, a preview of, of what I'm working on now, and um, I'm hoping it's all going to come together this year. Um, but uh, but uh, I'll stay tuned on that. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. We'll uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, well, thank you again for uh, making the time to, to talk to us. It was a, it was a great conversation. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope this is useful for people. And, and you know, for some people, I, I hope it entices them to go to or, or both of those books that, that came out. Um, and, and for others, at, at least um, – if if you feel like you've heard enough, then then you've wasted less, <laughs> of, your, less of your time and money than you would have um, if you bought one of those books. But uh, but I, I really hope that that the first event is is the one that that uh, this this interview will uh, will occasion. So so thank you. That was my conversation with Robert Yell about this wonderful new book, The Language of Disenchantment: Protestant Literalism and Colonial Discourse in British India which was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Religion.